Well, there was a championship celebration last night. The St. Louis Blues won the Stanley Cup. Billet families of Robert Thomas and Michael Del Zotto and Patrick Maroon and even Tim Taylor, Mike Van Ryan's family, friends, former schoolmates, everybody all excited. It was amazing. Ryan O'Reilly had things lit up around the Seaforth area, Clinton, Varna, Huron County, period. Wasn't that fun? That was fun. What do you think? You want to do it again? Huh? What do you think? This celebration, if it could happen tonight, because again, a lot of people wanted it to happen on Monday. This celebration that has an opportunity to happen tonight seems to be even bigger because it's not just, oh, I know that guy. Or, yeah, I remember that guy. It's Toronto and the Raptors and Canada's only NBA team. Can they win the NBA championship tonight? Sure they can. Could have won it on Monday. Just matters what happens. You don't want to lose again and have to have it come down to one game. But seriously, these Golden State Warriors, they don't have a lot left. They are just champions. So they're going on heart. The Raptors... They just have to relax. They just have to do what they know they can do and use that will that they've imposed to get to where they are, all those little cliche things. And then maybe, just maybe, we get a very late celebration. Tomorrow's Friday. It might be better if tomorrow were Saturday or if you happen to have tomorrow off. If you do, you have planned perfectly, just in case. Raptors, Golden State, 9 o'clock tip-off tonight. We do have Jurassic Park, Dundasic Park ready to go on Dundas Place, and that will get underway as the game gets underway, but to get a a good standing position, get down there a little bit before 9 o'clock, and uh, hopefully have some fun. Other viewing parties have sprouted up. St. Thomas, I believe, you can update me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe they're at Memorial Arena again because the weather is not fantastic. It'll be rain or shine at Jurassic Park on Dundas Place. We are going to talk more about legal aid in just a couple of minutes. Yesterday, we delved into this. We're finding out more, and I don't think we knew enough about legal aid before yesterday. Unless you are somebody who has made use of it, I really don't think we are realizing the impact of this. And we're going to speak with someone who's going to tell us a really big impact, who's going to illustrate that the government may be doing something where it looks really good. Hey, we're going to be saving $133 million. Wow. Good for you. That's outstanding. But when you break things down, you can say that for every $1 spent on legal aid, $6 can be saved in the community. Unfortunately, I can't put together a graph for you to show exactly how that works. It's one of those things where, well, if you spend the dollar on legal aid, you're saving it in other areas. So it's not actual money. It's, yeah, well, we didn't have to spend this much here. Well, we didn't have to spend this much here. And you know that it's happening and you hear from everybody involved that it's happening. But the government is not going to look at that and say, yeah, okay, well, but we can't put that in a tidy pictograph. I can't use a Venn diagram and show that to people. I can't tweet that out. So they're not going to do it. So this is, again, one of those things that is going to be cut. We heard from 
London lawyer Gord Cudmore yesterday. I want to play you a little something that he had said. Michael Bryant was on the Craig Needle Show. He's the executive director and general counsel for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I want to play you a little something that he said. He had a great analogy this morning. So that in just a moment. But that's what's coming up. And then we'll talk to Neighborhood Legal Services and kind of spell this out even more. It's kind of cloudy, it's it's kind of rotten, but it's almost the weekend. So as this hour goes along, let's focus in on a couple of things that are happening. One tomorrow and the next one on Saturday. So we can kind of grab that weekend and drag it closer. So we'll do that as the hour goes along. In an hour from now, we'll be talking about a poll that Angus Reid took that deals with Indigenous team names. How offensive do Canadians actually find it? The CFL kicks off tonight. The Edmonton Eskimos do not play, but there are those who say, yeah, the Eskimos' name needs to go. The Eskimos are not one of them. In Washington in the NFL, Redskins is the name, and that one needs to go. But Washington has said, no, don't think so. We've seen a lot of colleges in the United States make changes. We're seeing McGill in Montreal make changes, but... How do Canadians feel about this? How do you think they feel about it? We're going to find that out. We are going to get a CFL preview with Don Landry on the start of the season, and we'll talk about a local success story in soccer as well. So loads of things on the way, plus what meat will become in 2040. But let's continue to dig into the meat of what is legal aid. And I want to take you back. Yesterday, we were able to speak with London lawyer Gord Cudmore, and he told us about one of the things that is already happening with legal aid in Ontario. When you're charged with the offense, if you can't afford a lawyer, you go to legal aid, and legal aid looks at your finances uh, and determines whether or not you can afford a lawyer. Uh, and basically, if you're making a slightly below the poverty line, they think you can afford a lawyer. Uh and then also, it's depending on uh, what the Crown is seeking. In other words, if it's <clears throat> not likely that if you're convicted, you'll go to jail, then you won't get legal aid. Of course, you get a criminal record, you may get probation, you may get all sorts of things. But uh, unless you're at some risk of going to jail, you're not going to get legal aid. So that's why a lot of people who may well have a defense uh, to their case just don't have the resources to hire a lawyer. I don't know about you. I watch too much TV, obviously. I watch too many movies. I thought everybody had the right to an attorney. Well, it doesn't work out that way. And now, when you see cutbacks, you see other challenges. In fact, one of those challenges was pointed out very eloquently this morning on the Craig Needle Show by Michael Bryant. Again, he's the executive director and general counsel for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. He talked about what these cuts to legal aid could mean with that analogy. The industry uh, may move out of the field in Ontario. And, and, and I, I guess it'd be something like this. Imagine, well, uh, right now, dairy uh, milk prices are, uh, are regulated, right? So yeah. if, you, if you make milk unprofitable for dairy farmers, they'll just stop milking cows. They'll move into something else. Same with lawyers. If they're losing money, on practicing criminal law, they will move out. Or more particularly, they, they might stop working in the field in a particular jurisdiction. So the, the constitutional risk is going to arise probably in a rural area where they don't have duty counsel present, where they had relied upon lawyers to do bail hearings. 
lawyers are, are you know, they're not making a salary. They, the only way the criminal lawyers are going to be making money is by, is, you know, through a legal aid certificate in most cases. That is Michael Bryant, Executive Director and General Counsel for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association on the Craig Needle Show earlier today. So this becomes a big issue because, again, we're looking at cuts everywhere and, and we've delved into so many different areas. We've delved into healthcare already. We've delved into education already. We're going to be back in those areas. But this is the way that the law works right now. And we're talking again about some of the most vulnerable people in our communities. And it would be nice to say, hey, everybody looks after themselves. Everybody's fine. If everybody only did A, B, and C, they'd be able to do everything that they wanted to do. Life doesn't work like that. That's not the way things work. You do need social programs. You do need to protect some people from themselves. I hate to say it. There are a lot of things that I'd like to see change. You know, I don't enjoy that someone has a great cell phone plan if they are on welfare. But it can happen. Now, I don't even know how it happens, but it it can happen. When you cobble together enough baby bonus, sometimes it does. But I'm not going to get off on that tangent right now. Right now, I want to explore legal aid, and I want to look at what it does mean for those who are vulnerable in our community. And we're going to talk with Lawrence Burns, a staff lawyer at Neighborhood Legal Services, in just a moment. And we'll discuss what this does mean and some of the other things that are happening in this province. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. You know when you get something and it says, some assembly required? Usually it's a kid's toy right around the holidays. And you have to figure that thing out. That's tough. Right now, that's what legal services is trying to do. They're trying to figure out how to make do with less. And we're going to see neighborhood legal services in London going before the Community and Protective Services Committee on Monday. They have some concerns. And joining us right now is Lawrence Burns, a staff lawyer with Neighborhood Legal Services. Lawrence, let's talk about what the government is doing and how it does impact your area of legal aid. The the government has decided to introduce a $133 million cut to legal aid this year. And just yesterday, we found out how legal aid is going to uh, portion out that cut. So we work in the clinic system, and we have our own significant cut uh, that is affecting us, but also the Toronto clinics and specialty clinics are having extremely uh, massive cuts. So and when you talk about the clinic system, see, we're getting to learn a lot more about legal aid. We had played a, a clip from Gord Cudmore, who we spoke with yesterday, describing some of the things that were already challenging to legal aid. When you talk about clinics, what is that referring to? Well, legal aid funds... In addition to criminal and family law certificates, they fund immigration and refugee uh, certificates as well. Uh, But they also have a a significant clinic system. So there's 72 clinics across the province, all in each uh, county. And then there are several specialty clinics who do law reform or focus on specific areas of law, like um, disability law or workers' rights. So we're a neighborhood clinic that looks at social assistance issues relating to ODSP, Ontario Works, also housing, so landlord-tenant issues, and employment, as well as criminal injuries compensation. So we represent, most of our work is frontline service work, 
that involves helping clients get benefits through social assistance or resolve disputes with welfare and advocate for their rights in housing and and employment. So uh, one of the main issues the government had said was that there would be no cuts to frontline service. And unfortunately, uh, we're right at the front line of of this uh, poverty law work. And this year, we're able to absorb some of the cuts, uh, unlike the Toronto clinics and the specialty clinics, which have had to... um, face much more disproportionate cuts. But next year and the year after, we're, we're not going to be able to uh, sustain the level of service we currently provide. So our concern is that the government cuts are just the tip of the iceberg. They've already announced that the future cuts next year and then the year after are going to increase. And then they're also, and more worryingly, thinking about how to reform the system of legal aid delivery as a whole. So from a clinic perspective, uh, Ontario is one of the only provinces with this kind of clinic system. And so in addition to helping frontline service, uh, clients with frontline service, we also do law reform, community community advocacy, and public legal education. So a lot of the work we do in addition to frontline work is trying to help advocate for citizens' rights in relation to government uh, reforms and we know this conservative government has introduced a lot of reforms, employment law, social assistance reforms are coming. They're changing the definition of disability and also reforms to landlord-tenant board and the process around the housing. So the cuts aren't just affecting service. They're also affecting our ability to fight against these reforms. And so with larger changes looming, uh, we also are concerned for our own survival as a clinic system. Uh, I think the certificate side is always going to be uh, maintained because, especially for criminal and family, it's, uh, well, criminal in particular, it's uh, especially important given the legal peril that people might face. But the clinic system, there's been signs that the government's not too happy with the work we do, especially since we're often challenging government legislation, but also decisions made by government with regards to other welfare or social assistance, uh, disability. And so, we feel that this cut isn't just about making it efficient, it's also about undermining our ability to fight um, for citizens' rights. We're talking with Lawrence Burns on London Live, staff lawyer with Neighborhood Legal Services, and we're already learning all kinds of things. You mentioned Toronto and some other clinics in the province are not going to be able to really absorb these cuts, but so far you may be. How come there is that difference? Well, the... The priority for legal aid has been to preserve frontline service. So this first round of cuts, they've looked at how the clinics um, population-wise have different uh, responsibilities to the, the, the clients they serve. So in Toronto, they've mentioned there's a lot of overlap because there's a number of specialty clinics that operate in Toronto um, who have... A lot of their work is in law reform, public legal education, and advocacy, so they have less frontline service. But also, um, they've decided that uh, this is the fairest way to distribute cuts at the moment. So there's a lot of um, support for the Toronto clinics within the rest of the clinic system. We've been, um, we are represented by a very strong advocacy group called ACLCO, which has been really good at maintaining our solidarity. Um, But unfortunately, the cuts to Toronto are sort of a sign of what we're facing down the road. So next year especially, um, 
we may be in danger of losing staff. Uh, this year, fortunately, we didn't have to make any staff cuts, but next year we might have to do that. And um, so with the Toronto clinics, another aspect is that um, that they've noted is that it's easier for people to commute around the cities and uh, different clinics, so they may be able to go to another clinic. They've asked clinics to work together, but it's still not a a good scenario and that it's and it's just the beginning. We're talking with Neighborhood Legal Services staff lawyer Lawrence Burns. You're going to go before the Community and Protective Services Committee at London City Council on Monday. What exactly are you going to express there that you hope helps? Well, we're hoping that the City Council will be willing to help us by communicating to the province that uh, these legal aid cuts are disproportionately affecting the poorest people in in London, but also across the province. But thinking about London specifically, um, our clients are all uh, you know on social assistance or the working poor, and so without us to advocate for them, they really have no means to pay for private lawyers, and their rights are going to suffer. And an impact of that will be on loss of benefits. So with regard to housing, if people aren't able to maintain their housing, then there'll be more use of the shelters, more reliance on uh, social assistance. And one of the big fears uh, is that the disability definition, so for ODSP purposes, the definition of disability is going to be changed. So our colleague, Mike LaLiberty, is also going to speak about the fact that the um, the number of people who will qualify for disability is going to be significantly reduced, and so there'll be a lot more people on OW um, requiring the city to provide that assistance. And uh, the other feature is that the the legal aid cuts are going to affect the delivery of um, the administration of justice in the city as well. So we found, especially relating to criminal and, and family law matters, that the more that people have to represent themselves or or only use duty counsel, the, there's an increased cost to the system in terms of length of time to have matters proceed through the court or um, problems getting documentation and whatnot. So there's been studies, the Canadian Bar Association has noted that for every um, dollar spent on legal aid, the government saves an average of $6 elsewhere. So it's kind of a short-sighted approach, and we want to tell the council that and there, this is a bigger issue, but in terms of the city, um, the impact is going to be quite quite um, significant. Yeah, more trickle-down. We're talking with Lawrence Burns. He is a staff lawyer with Neighborhood Legal Services. Lawrence, as a final note, you've discussed so many different things that Neighborhood Legal Services does, from advocacy to going against some of the reforms and making sure that there's some accountability there to everything that you cover off with the people that you are dealing with directly in legal aid. If you could take that old magic wand and and you could, instead of having to deal with cuts, if you could say, okay, if we could do this, our jobs would get better. Is there anything you could point to that would do that? Well, the, to be honest, the money is a big part of this. Like just being able to provide the services that we do. Um, the legal aid has a income test, so you have to meet the requirement for that. And so there had been increases in the past, but um, the number of people that meet our criteria is is, is essentially too low. And it'd be ideal if we could have more funding 
to increase the, the clients we serve, to hire people to serve those clients. Because um, all of our work is really, uh, all of our resources are spent in frontline work. So um, the more staff we have, the more we can do law reform, the more we can engage with the community and our partners in the community. And um, so unfortunately, I think the money is, is a key part of the puzzle and also a general willingness to support poverty law initiatives. I think that one of the frustrations we have is that poverty um, isn't popular for the government, so the government has chosen to kind of saddle a lot of the costs on the, the poorest in the city, and so we're, we want to also ideally kind of create more awareness of the issues that people face who are dealing with poverty, um, the mundane issues around housing or being able to afford enough for their, their rent, uh, their clothes and basic needs. And, and so a kind of attitude change is also something that would be ideal. And um, But with the current climate and the government focused on kind of costs and, and uh, issues that really don't uh, connect with the people of that we're serving. So Lawrence, you've painted a very interesting and a very concerning picture, and we really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Very happy to talk. Lawrence Burns. Lawrence is a staff lawyer with Neighborhood Legal Services, so we'll see how things go Monday. We'll check in with Lawrence next week as we continue to look at the impact on legal aid. We're learning a lot more about it. I don't know about you. I don't like what we're learning. News is coming up next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Good afternoon. It is 1.30. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. We have mostly cloudy skies. It's 18 degrees. The Progressive Conservative government announced funding this morning to support ambulance care in the province. At a stop in London, Christine Elliott says the government has earmarked $6.8 million to support transporting critically ill newborns safer and faster. Elliott says each ambulance will have the equipment to help paramedics respond to the critical needs of patients and have the capacity to take on more calls. She says when it comes to newborns, every second counts. This innovative partnership between emergency medical services and hospitals will help reduce the time needed to uh, transport a critically ill newborn between hospitals by an estimated 19 percent. Elliott says the four children's hospitals in the province will jointly receive nearly $5.8 million this year to support highly specialized teams and ensure they're available 24-7. That includes the Children's Hospital at London Health Sciences Centre, which Elliott says will receive more than a million. Meantime, London Mayor Ed Holder is set to meet with Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott at City Hall. Her visit comes in the wake of the news that the province denied funding for a permanent supervised consumption site at 446 York Street, a location that had been approved by the city. Two officials from the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care toured both 446 York Street and the temporary site at 186 King Street yesterday. Dr. Chris Mackey will also be at this uh, today's meeting with Elliott. Charges depend on the outcome of a Health Canada analysis, which could take several weeks. But London police have seized several items and dismantled a suspected methamphetamine lab at a residence on Hamilton Road. Emergency services first attended the scene on Hamilton Road near East Park around 3 Tuesday afternoon. It was quickly determined there was no risk to public safety, but the area was secured and Health Canada chemists arrived yesterday to assist in the case. Today, police announced the seizure of a recipe book for making meth, ingredients commonly used in making meth, containers with unidentified solids and liquids, and waste products. 
The investigation is ongoing. If Canada is to meet its Paris Agreement targets for greenhouse gas emissions, higher carbon taxes will be needed. Under current projections, Canada will reduce its emissions to 592 megatons of carbon dioxide by 2030. But our target is 513 megatons, which means there's a gap of 79. The Parliamentary Budget Office estimated an additional price on carbon after 2023 would cut emissions more and add a lower cost to the economy than the current fuel charge. You're listening to 980 CFPL. It is International Snack Day. You have a go-to snack? You know what I find is a go-to snack? Something called go-to snacks. We found them at the dollar store. They're corn puffs and these jalapeno cheese crunchets. They're amazing. You just go down an aisle in the dollar store and you'll find them. Am I new? Probably. I probably should have found these a while ago. If you have a favorite go-to snacks, one of those hidden gems somewhere, and we don't know about it, could you please email 980CFPL or Mike at 980CFPL.ca right now? Mike at 980CFPL.ca. Favorite go-to snack so that, you know, I've been missing out on these go-to snacks. That's legitimately what they are called in the dollar store for years. Just found them a couple of months ago. What else are we missing out on? If you have any hidden gems, please email Mike at 980cfpl.ca or you can tweet me at Stubbs980. Okay, let's talk a little bit about some of the things happening in the next couple of days. One of them being the induction ceremony for the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. You have a number of amazing baseball people Going in, Ryan Dempster, pitcher, Gord Ash, executive, Jason Bay, slugger. And tomorrow, actually, we're going to speak with, I love his story, Rob Thompson, who came from Corona and worked his way up the baseball ladder as a player in the minor leagues and then decided, you know what? I don't know that I can make it as a player, but he calls himself a good self-evaluator. Well, he's even in a better other people evaluator. So we're going to talk with him about his journeys, played at the Olympics in L.A., has won the World Series with the New York Yankees. What is it like to win the World Series with the New York Yankees? So we'll talk with Rob Thompson tomorrow about that. Right now, though, we're lucky to have Scott Crawford, the executive director of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, with us to look ahead to induction weekend. The big induction ceremony comes up on Saturday, and this gives us an opportunity to talk all about it. Scott, we're just days away. What is it like around the hall right now? It's exciting. I mean, the tent company showed up yesterday to put up the tents. We're getting Rotary Field renovated, uh, so it's going to look brand new for this weekend. And, and uh, you know, the, bo- the boxes are piling up with ready to stuff to ship out over to the tent for induction day, and it's coming together nicely. You guys are like the city of London right now with the renovations that you're doing. They're doing construction everywhere in London. You have a brand new look to the Hall of Fame itself. What's happening with the fields? Yeah, we're just getting a renovation. We try to do a field a year to keep them up top grade, as as you know. And people who play in the fields know we really take pride in the, the fields and keep them uh, top class so people can come and enjoy not only the Hall of Fame itself, which is newly renovated, but when the kids are playing ball on the field, they're really enjoying it. 
you kind of expect as years go by, you know, maybe it'll be tough to find some big names for this year. Every year you manage to do this, and you look at the list, Jason Bay, Ryan Dempster, Rob Thompson, Gord Ash, the number of World Series rings, that's getting to be a, a high count right there. You can't even fit them on ten fingers. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Rob's got five himself from his 28 years with the Yankees through their heyday, and and now, of course, he's on to Philadelphia, which is a great young team with uh, a good chance to make the playoffs this year. And, you know, you're right. The Canadian baseball is it's pretty deep and talented, and, and there's a lot of guys that are just recently retired or are going to retire, and you have to wait three years to be eligible for our Hall of Fame. And that's why it's Ryan and Jason's time this year. And, and uh, not too far down the road, there'll be other guys that, uh, like the John Axfords and the Russell Martins and, and whatnot once they retire and, and they wait a couple of years. Let's kind of look at... All of them, beginning with Rob Thompson, because he's got such an amazing path to be able to do what he did. How rare would you say that is to be able to get to the heights of coaching in baseball as a Canadian, as a guy from Sarnia? Yeah, I mean, he's the only one. I mean, Dave McKay's been coaching for just as long, and he's in the Hall of Fame already. So, I mean, Rob's well-deserving. He started out in the early 80s. He played for Team Canada at the first-ever Olympic baseball competition back in 84, he played in the minor leagues, and then he coached, you know, 28 years in the Yankee system, which, you know, through the, through the Derek Jeter years and A-Rod years and George Steinbrenner years, and, you know, he ran basically all the spring training for the whole Yankee organization, and then he was up in the big leagues being the bench coach, the first base coach, third base coach, so he's, uh, he's well, uh, well adversed in the game of baseball, and, and he took his talents to Philadelphia, and he's helping them out greatly. Then we look at Jason Bay, who is a guy who went to the Little League World Series, but then he had just uh, an explosive career. What do you think of when you think of Jason Bay? I think Jason Bay is one of the underrated players of his of his generation. I mean, he hit over 200 home runs, and he, he stole almost 100 bases in his career. He, there's not many guys with power and speed, and he had them both. You don't really hear about it. I mean, he won Silver Slugger Awards. He's the only Canadian to be named Rookie of the Year. Um, you know, he's with the Red Sox. He's mostly with the Pirates throughout his career, but um, his best, one of his best years came with the Red Sox. And he's just one of those guys that you didn't hear about too much, but if you go down and look at his numbers, I mean, he had a 360 on base percentage. And, and, you know, there's a lot of guys these days that can't get on base, and he's one of the guys that could. We're talking with Scott Crawford from the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. This weekend is a big weekend in St. Mary's. The actual enshrinement ceremony goes on June the 15th. If you've never been there, you need to be there. If you're a baseball fan, this this is candy. This, uh, this, is, uh, this is Disney. Ryan Dempster is a guy who just seems to enjoy everything he's doing. When you're, when you're having a phone conversation with him about coming to St. Mary's, does he still seem to be enjoying that as well? He does. He's always having a good time. He's hilarious. He's always cracking jokes. He's, uh, you know, he's going to be laughed on stage for the induction ceremony because that's what the uh, the other guys on the conference called joke. You better put Ryan on last because we can't compete with what he's <laughs> with what he's going to say. So we did what the other inductees wanted and put him up last. And uh, he, you know, he spent 16 years pitching in the big leagues. And and if you think we all know Fergie Jenkins and how legendary he was, if you want to know who's second on Canadian pitching records. It's Ryan Dempster. He's second in game started, wins, innings pitch, strikeouts. You know, so he's he's a legend. And then we are waiting to see whether the Raptors can become the first Canadian-based team to win a championship in either Major League Baseball, the NBA, 
the NHL, any of those major pro sports in North America, since the Jays did it in 1993, and one of the guys who made it happen in 92 and 93 goes in this weekend in Gord Ash. Yeah, Gord is, again, one of those guys, you know, he was the assistant GM during the World Series year, so you heard, of course, a lot about Pat Gillick and Paul Beeston, but you got to have a great team behind you, and another number one guy behind them was Gord Ash doing all the the assistant general manager's jobs. But he, interesting story with Gord. I mean, he started in the ticket office in the very first year, 1977. Worked his all the way up to general manager in the early or in the late 90s after the World Series years. And, you know, so he started basically from, you know, general Joe job in the ticket office all the way up to, uh, to the general manager of a big league team. And then he went off to Milwaukee and did the same thing. So he's, uh, he's had quite the career. Scott Crawford from the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame with us on London Live as we get set for a big weekend. Okay, describe the weekend for us. How does the public get involved? What are the things that we need to know? Yeah, well, obviously the big day is Saturday, June twenty, Saturday, June 15th. The ceremony is at 1 o'clock, but you got to come before that. I mean, the museum's open, and it's newly renovated and expanded, so it's all new. If you've been here before, you won't even recognize how... The inside of it has been redone. The uh, there's ball games on the field. We got all three fields going with kids' games starting about ten o'clock in the morning. Uh, there's auctions. Of course, there's the autograph session after the after the ceremony with the inductees and other special guests. So it's a great day of baseball. Um, we're expecting a ton of people. The events it's free to attend outside in our ceremonial tent on our ball field. So it's uh, it's a great event to attend, and, and you shouldn't miss it. Scott, can't wait. Thanks so much for the time. Enjoy the weekend. Hey, we will, Mike. I appreciate it. That is Scott Crawford. As we get set for the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Again, we'll talk with Rob Thompson tomorrow. He's got some great stories about life in the minors, life at the Olympics, life in the majors, winning a World Series with the Yankees. Up next, someone else who has created one incredible story that continues and continues. And tomorrow is going to be stretched over a 100-kilometer course. Teresa Carrier joins us to talk about one run. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Since one run started in 2010, almost 10 million people have been reached. I'm willing to bet it's now over 10 million people. They have raised over $1 million for the fight against cancer. Teresa Carrier has run from London to Sarnia and Sarnia to London more than once, more than twice, more than three times. Tomorrow, she is going to do a 100-kilometer course in a single day. Think about this. 100 kilometers in a single day. And you might think anybody doing that is probably fast asleep right now. Today is the day of naps. Uh, not Teresa. She joins us. Teresa, how are you feeling? Oh, I feel excited and nervous and just anxious to get going tomorrow. Well, I have our 90-kilometer package, and we're okay, all set great. to join you at the 90th kilometer. And I can't wait for that. But you'll have run 90 kilometers before then. Tell us why you decided to do this again, because you ran 100 kilometers four times, right? That's right. I think the, the main motivation in doing it a fifth time was to get the, the students involved. As you know, One Run has uh, reached out to a lot of the schools in London and area, and we talk about One Run to the kids, but we wanted them to see it firsthand what uh, this community offers to the people that need our help. 
Well, it is an amazing initiative. Uh, training, how has that gone? Training has gone well, thank God. I have a, a great trainer in Brad Arndt, and he's been very diligent in providing me what I need to to make this a successful run tomorrow. And I've been listening well, and hopefully the lakes hold up and everything goes well. What is the key? Having It's very difficult to find too many people who you can say, hey, what is the key to running 100 kilometers in a day? Most people will say, I have no idea what you're talking about. We can ask actually ask you that question. What is a key to tomorrow and, and kind of managing what you have to do? Well, I think the question would probably be better answered on Monday after I do it, if I do it well. But basically, it's obviously lots of training, uh, lots of um, you know, uh, stretching and taking care of your body, eating well. So there's a lot of elements that play into it besides just the running on the road. So uh, Brad has guided me along really well, and uh, I feel strong and healthy. So hopefully it pays off. Teresa Carrier with us, set for one run tomorrow. We've had high schools involved doing their own one runs for weeks now. It will leave very early tomorrow morning from Fit for Less in London and return to St. Andre Bissette. If somebody's not participating in the run, can they come by later on in the day? Absolutely. We have a great celebration planned at St. Andre Bissette, who is our finish line. From 4 to 7, there's lots of performers, and there's a yoga class, there's a Zumba class, so there's going to be a party atmosphere there. So hopefully uh, we arrive somewhere around 6 o'clock and we can celebrate together. You are creating it, and you are creating all kinds of attention. As we mentioned, basically 10 million people have been reached. You've raised over a million dollars. What is it like to know that those numbers exist based on what one run. Well, I, I'm obviously very proud and very uh, grateful to everybody involved. Our, our project manager and Paulette Socha and our team have been working so hard. And not only our team, but our sponsors, contribution, and the community at large. Uh, if it wasn't for the support of all those people involved, we could never have reached where we are. And what it means to all of us is the families that we're reaching out to that are dealing with cancer and just need some help. And it's very great, um, gratifying to know that we're able to offer it to them. Well, that's just it. You are making such a difference in doing this. In running, some people will like to run on hot days. Some people will like to run on cool days. Some people even like rainy days. Do you have a preference if we can order you some weather between now and tomorrow, Teresa? Well, if you can arrange for the wind to be at my back the entire time, that would be great. <laughs> okay. I think we can put in a request for sure. Okay, thank you. I All right. appreciate that. The route is going out kind of around Strathroy. Is that maybe the best way to describe it? Yes. Um, we'll be venturing right through the town of Strathroy and stopping by to visit the folks at the, the town hall there. Our route detail will be on our website at onerun.ca, so if people are interested, it identifies the survivor circle so we're inviting survivors to come out and run a kilometer with with me at kilometer 45 and 93 there's cheering stations and so if they look at our website you'll be able to catch me at certain times we'll be feeding live so you'll know exactly where to find us as well people running marathons will always say that cheering that is that's so important how about for you tomorrow absolutely especially with uh somebody joining me at each kilometer each kilometer i'll have new energy with somebody new who's joining me so that's going to be key Uh, i look forward to seeing you and your family as well i know 90 will be a tough bout so hopefully you guys can carry me to 91 uh but the cheering and the support along the route and 
for the students to see that, Mike, is going to be pretty special for them as well. So I'm anxious to share that experience with them. Well, the message that you send is so incredible. You are such an inspiration for what you have done personally. And to do this again, this this is amazing. Teresa, can't wait for tomorrow. Get some rest. I don't, is there a nap planned at all today? <laughs> I'm just hoping I can get to sleep tonight, that's all. So hopefully I'll, I'll sleep through the weekend. It'll be fine. Okay, sounds good. Teresa, we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, Mike. Good luck with everything. All right. Bye-bye. That is Teresa Carrier from One Run. She began One Run. She's a breast cancer survivor herself and decided, I got to do something. I got to do something. And this is what she started to do, running 100 kilometers. You know, it's one thing to to come up with, okay, we're going to have this event. It's another thing to do something nobody does. And she's done it four times. Tomorrow will be the fifth time. And to be able to say, yeah, we've got a lot of high school students who are involved in this. But how about if they were able to see that firsthand and see what running 100 kilometers is all about? And Teresa runs with survivors and families who have lost loved ones. And all of it is raising incredible amounts of money for the fight against cancer and families dealing with cancer. So that is happening tomorrow, and we'll have details on that. You can follow along on my Twitter feed at Stubbs980 because we'll be there at kilometer number 90, and I'll make sure and take some pictures so that even if you can't get out, you can certainly see what is happening. We'll let you know what is still to happen on London Live. We have a lot more to come. We're going to be talking about Indigenous team names and an Angus Reid poll that has been done We have a league with an Indigenous team name kicking off tonight. The Canadian Football League has the Edmonton Eskimos. We'll get a CFL preview, and we'll certainly talk a little bit more about the Toronto Raptors as well. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We'll get to favorite snacks. We've had a couple of people email in. We'll let you know what you might be missing out on. Maybe you're not missing out on it at all. We're also going to talk with Dave Korzynski from Angus Reid because Angus Reid just did a poll regarding Indigenous team names in, well, they did the poll in Canada, so Indigenous team names, period, and whether or not we need to see some changes. This topic comes up from time to time, and it always seems that people are in favor of changing those names, and then the team steps up and says, you know what, like our name. Yeah, our name has uh, heritage to it, uh, branding. So we're not going to change. And that seems to be where it ends. A lot of universities and colleges have made changes to Indigenous team names. But at the professional level, not so much. We'll see what Canadians say in this latest poll and what effect that could have. And then we are going to talk about the start of the CFL season. We'll get a preview, but more so the health of the league. How does that stand? Unfortunately, the CFL kicks off tonight. No one could have planned this. Because they've had their schedule in place for a while, even when it was kind of a concern as to whether or not they would have a schedule based on a collective bargaining agreement. But they couldn't have planned that they would be up against Game 6 of the Toronto Raptors and that Hamilton would be kicking off the season. That's exactly what has happened. They've moved up that start time to 7 o'clock. And in women's world soccer action, Australia just beat Brazil. It's not as big an upset as it sounds, but it's a pretty big upset. News is on the way next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.
Good afternoon. It is 2 o'clock. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. Pretty cloudy and 18 degrees. The provincial government is announcing money to support paramedic services locally. Christine Elliott was at the Middlesex London Paramedic Services to announce $6.8 million to supporting transporting critically ill newborns safer and faster throughout the province. She says each ambulance will have the equipment to help paramedics respond to the critical needs of patients and have the capacity to take on more calls. Dedicated ambulances will be standardized and pre-equipped with the tools they need in order to care for critically ill newborns and improve response times. Each ambulance will be supported by two paramedics, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Elliott says the four children's hospitals in the province will also jointly receive nearly $5.8 million this year to support highly specialized teams and ensure they're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That includes the Children's Hospital at London Health Sciences Centre, which Elliot says will receive more than a million dollars. Elliot will also meet with Mayor Ed Holder today to discuss London's cancelled supervised consumption site. The meeting follows the province's decision to cancel funding for the site at 446 York Street. 980 CFPL's Devin Peacock reports. The funding cut announced a week and a half ago stunned many in the community who had advocated for the supervised consumption site, which would have been located across from the men's mission at the old John Ballone's music store. The community had completed a year-long process to get to the funding component, only to see it cut without an explanation. In an interview with CTV Toronto last week, Premier Doug Ford said the funding was cut because of the site's proximity to H.B. Bill Secondary School. In making the decision to cut funding for 446 York Street, the province encouraged the city to turn the interim supervised consumption site at 186 King Street into a permanent site and to apply for mobile units. Two officials from the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care toured both 446 York Street and 186 King Street on Wednesday, according to the London Free Press. Devin Peacock, 980 CFPL. London police say charges could take weeks depending on a Health Canada analysis, but police have seized numerous items from a suspected meth lab. Emergency services arrived at the scene on Hamilton Road near East Park on Tuesday afternoon. Constable Sandasha Bow says Health Canada chemists arrived yesterday and a search warrant was executed. A recipe book for making methamphetamine, ingredients commonly used in making methamphetamine, containers with unidentified solids and liquids, and waste products were seized. The investigation's ongoing and anyone with information is asked to contact police. It will be another late night for Toronto Raptors fans determined to stay up to watch a 9 p.m. Eastern time start to Game 6 of the NBA Finals. A Southern Ontario couple from Keswick has come up with a unique way to help the basketball team's youngest fans explain their sleepiness to their teachers tomorrow. The Keswick parents drafted a form letter students can give to their teachers in the morning, saying if the child appears groggy, quote, Please try yelling, let's go Raptors, as loud as you possibly can, and they will wake up. Parenting expert Maureen Dennis says sometimes it is worth it to break bedtime rules for a special dose of family time. And if you're hoping to take in Game 6 tonight, London's Jurassic Park has you covered. Dundas Place has transformed into a fan zone throughout the NBA Finals, hosting viewing parties for Londoners to come together to watch Toronto take on Golden State. You're listening to 980 CFPL. It's the International Snack Day. Couldn't come on a better day. Game six of the NBA Finals. It's okay to snack. You're supposed to. You wouldn't be joining in the international love if you did not. 
Uh, just want to catch up on a couple of emails. Best snack. I still say that it is the go-to snacks that you find in the dollar store. I don't know that you have them anywhere else. And I don't know whether it's Dollar Genie, Dollar Giant, Dollar Rama. I don't, I don't know about any of those. I, I don't know which one it is. It's whatever one we went to once and we got them and went, these are amazing. We have to get more. And we did. Uh, Kathy was actually <laughs> in the dollar store as we were talking about that or just outside the dollar store and then walked in. Couldn't find them in the one that she was at. It's the corn twists and the jalapeno cheese crunchets for lack of a better word, it's like the ones in Cheetos, the crunch it ones. Really good. Uh, Denise emailed Mike at 980cfpl.ca, says, does ice cream in a waffle cone count? Yes, that's also good on International Indulgence Day. Uh, Steve says, cheesies, don't know about your jalapeno ones, but I have stained many a board game in my time. You should see the Monopoly board at our house. More orange than anything else. Okay, sure. Yeah, watch the cheesies. They'll ruin shirts. Uh, Chris says rippled chips and onion dip. Doug says bits and bites. And he said, I couldn't find the commercial. I wanted to include it with my email, but I did find what it says. Every handful is different. He's got dot, dot, dot. We'll read that in a little while. He's got the whole... The whole thing in there. Oh, and uh, Doug also says a tip. The bulk barrel mix is just as good. Buy it from there. Kelso says gummy blue sharks. And Kelly has said sour cream and onion chips. If we're talking healthy, though, baby carrots and bell peppers. Very nice. Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet at Stubbs980. We love to know what Canadians are thinking, right? That, that's kind of why we're talking International Snack Day today. You love to know what Canadians are thinking. There is something that comes up from time to time, and that something is Indigenous team names. We've seen a lot of universities in the States make changes. McGill is changing away from Redmen. We still have some that are out there, though, and it's difficult to know whether Chicago Blackhawks, Atlanta Braves, Edmonton Eskimos, it's pretty clear Washington Redskins is not a name that many people feel is appropriate anymore. But Angus Reed got nice and technical for us on this. And they grabbed some polling on indigenous team names and whether or not we're honoring cultural traditions or we're disrespecting through caricature. And joining us right now from Angus Reed is Dave Korzynski. Dave, thanks for being with us on London Live. No problem. Good afternoon. Still good morning over here, but good afternoon for the Eastern uh, listeners. Hey, we'll take your time. I'd like to have a few more hours in this day. That'd be just fine. I know. The basketball game starts at 6 tonight for us. A lot of complaints about that. Man, and we just heard in news how we've got a a letter that's been created by people in Ontario, I think it was, uh, that is there because you may be very tired tomorrow and it encourages teachers to yell, let's go Raptors to wake up students, things like that. Like that, yeah, it's going to be over for you guys. It's only going to be nine o'clock. You'll still be able to hopefully celebrate. I know you can go for a run. You could go down to the pub, and the night's just starting. So it's it's it really is the benefit of the West Coast. I always get a little bit uh, discombobulated when I go out east, and the Canucks start at ten. It's it's not not ideal for the Western viewer. You either don't make it to the end, or you wind up being very very tired the next day. And the older yeah. you get, the harder it is to do that to yourself. I don't know why that is. Well. <laughs> 
The more years that go by, the more this topic does come up. But mm-hmm. I don't know that we've seen something as comprehensive as what you've put together in terms of getting some polling numbers on Indigenous team names in sports. Toronto Raptors, nobody has a problem with that. Golden State Warriors, nobody seems to have a problem with that. In fact, one of their main logos is the Golden Gate Bridge. But when we talk about Cleveland Indians, Washington Redskins, Edmonton Eskimos, Atlanta Braves, Fighting Irish even, Kansas City Chiefs, there are so many different names that have at least been discussed. Dave, in looking at your research, what jumped off the page at you? Yeah, there's some interesting ones. Um, the, the interesting thing that really kind of jumps off the page when you're looking at just the broad takeaway for this is that Canadians really, they, they lean slightly toward not changing these names, but they're really, uh, they're amenable to, to the conversation. So um, first off, it's, it's kind of a generational issue. If you look at the numbers, we found that um, we kind of laid out the debate for people who are, aren't familiar with this and, and the two kind of broad arguments, you know, that, that some people say this is a stor- source of tradition and the names weren't offensive at the time, so you don't want to change them and, and do away with, you know, in the case of perhaps like the Edmonton Eskimos, they just, they're celebrating 70 years with that name now. Um, but other people argue that, you know, the times are changing and that, these, the way that we've used Indigenous imagery is, is sort of offensive and it, it minimizes those groups' um, you know, relevance in, in modern-day society. And we're try, try, kind of treating them um, as caricature. In a lot of cases, um, some people find that offensive. So what you see is that 56% lean towards uh, you know, changing or not changing the names, but that jumps to 6 and 10 with uh, the Canadians over 35 and for those under 35, uh, we lean the other way. I, I say we as a 34-year-old. Um, 58% say that, in fact, the name should change. So you, you mentioned that this is a conversation that keeps coming up. And um, if you go by the generational numbers, it doesn't seem like it's going to stop. It seems like it'll just keep picking up steam. And, and slowly, um, a lot of these names have been being changed and perhaps might continue to be changed in the future. Dave Korzynski joining us, research associate with Angus Reid. As we look at an Angus Reid poll that deals with Indigenous names, is it honoring cultural traditions? Is it disrespectful through the caricatures that have been created? Can you break it down, male versus female? Is is there any difference there? Yeah, there's there's quite a significant difference, actually, on that top-line question of, of how uh, – people feel about the broad issue. You see older men are really the the strongest supporters of keeping the names. It's about 7 in 10 who say that we shouldn't be changing these things. Whereas for uh, young men, it's basically 50-50. And for young women, those under 35, uh, they lean heavily in the other direction. So about 7 in 10 say that uh, the names should change. Uh, they're kind of leading that charge, even though they might not be the biggest sports fans, demographically speaking. And when you ask the question of, uh, you know, we showed 12 different logos on a, a spectrum of, of what we thought people might find offensive and others that are, you know, really not going to be an issue like the Montreal Canadiens. Um, women are much more likely to say that they think that um, either the name or logo of some of these teams, the, the Cleveland Indians, the Redskins, um, are, are offensive. Uh, in some cases, twice as likely as men. So, uh, it, men uh, are not necessarily uh, as predisposed to to the idea that we should be changing these names, and I think that's why you get such a polarized debate because you got a lot of 
um, you know, longtime hardcore sports fans who don't want their team name to be changed um, and, and aren't necessarily uh, agreeing with some of the discussions that are on the other side. So I think that's why it's, it's such a, a polarized and, and continuing debate uh, both here and in the United States. Certain teams seem to come up more so than others, and you just mentioned two of them, Washington in the NFL, Cleveland in Major League Baseball. Would they kind of lead the way on your polling results as to names that people are finding truly offensive or logos that they're finding truly offensive? Yeah, and you see that with we we offered the the Cleveland Indians logo, which they actually stopped using uh, this year. This is their first year that they've got rid of what they call Chief Wahoo. That's the the the, the big grin, the the Native American uh, kind of caricature looking guy with the the bright red uh, colors. So they've actually gone away from that. And the other big one in this conversation is the the Redskins because that. That term itself has been defined as a slur um, in a number of dictionaries. So for a lot of people, that's enough to say, you know, maybe we should stop using this and, and go with something like, you know, the Washington Warriors, like, like Golden State has, that is, uh, you know, still, still fun for the community but isn't necessarily uh, as demeaning as some people find this. And those two in particular, you get more than four, four in ten Canadians saying that they actually think that those are offensive. Um, the, the one that's interesting in Canada is that the Edmonton Eskimos, uh, about 3 in 10 Canadians say that, that they find that name to be offensive. So you still got a strong majority who are saying that they don't. But uh, one of the discussions we've been having around here is, you know, what, what is the ideal uh, level of offense that your, your community team nickname should be generating? Because you would think it would be closer to zero than these, some of these 3 in 10 or 4 in 10 numbers uh, which which leads you to believe that there's there's a likelihood that there could be some changes coming and you know the Eskimos have been consulting with Inuit communities and consulting with the community about whether or not to continue with that name um, and I think that's one that uh, to prognosticate might might disappear over the next few years uh, in after doing some research on this. Interesting. We're talking with Dave Korzynski from Angus Reid. Dave is a research associate with Angus Reid, and we're talking about a poll conducted across the country asking Canadians about Indigenous team names. One last thing did deal with the change that McGill University is making. You asked whether or not people felt that was the correct change to get away from red men as the men's sports team name. They have McGill Martlets for the female teams, but they have Redmen for the men's name, and that's going away. Did they feel that that was the right thing to do? Yeah, that one's really interesting, too, because that started out as just a name that was based on the color of jerseys back in, I believe, it's the 1920s. So you had, you know, 100 years of that name. Um, but what happened, and, and what often kind of happens over the years is that they actually started associating indigenous imagery with it, putting it on the band equipment. They they called the women's team the Super Squaws from 1971 to 76. So they, the, the term Red Men wasn't initially uh, referring to anything to do with indigenous peoples, but uh, it just co- sort of got adopted along the way. And what you see is you know, you've got the 56% who say that the name should not change, but when you ask them about McGill, it actually flips the other way, and that same 56% say that they made the right decision. So a lot of this is, if you have the broader conversation, Canadians are uh, more amenable to the idea of changing names, it looks like, if you explain some of the context to it, whereas just outright, they're, they're more inclined to say, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be going down this road. So yeah, 56% say that McGill made the right choice uh, in, in doing away with that name uh, earlier this year. 
Dave, thanks for sharing the information from the Angus Reid poll with us. No problem. Anytime. Have a great day. You too. Dave Korzynski from the West Coast, where the game tonight between the Raptors and the Warriors will be over probably about 9 p.m. Be a, a little later for us. Dave Korzynski's from Angus Reid on Indigenous team names and the results that they came up with. Let's take a break. Up next, we'll talk some soccer in this area. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Just when we thought it was all okay again. Looks like Raptors fans have been heckling Steph Curry's parents outside the Warriors team hotel. (laughs) Now, that was back in Toronto. So, come on. Come on. Now we have to apologize again. We're going to have to send more flowers, start more GoFundMes. Come on. You have to be a good fan even when you don't win, even things when, when things don't go your way. In fact, I bet the next person who we're going to hear from on London Live is not going to be happy right now, but is, is going to be okay. We got an email earlier today, unsolicited, by the way, and I want to pass this along, comes from Shane, and it says, Mike just wanted to say to listener Bob, there is always next year. Well, we're lucky enough to have Bob with us right now. Bob is a massive Bruins fan, was feeling good going into last night's game. Bob, I bet you're not feeling great right now, but but how you doing? Well, you know, uh, I was a little bit of a grumpy bear last night for a while, but uh, honestly, Mike, the game was over in the first period. Um you know, I, I got to give all credit. The first word that comes to mind for me, Game 7, Bennington. This kid is for real, and he he won that game, like almost single-handedly uh, for the Blues. I mean, he got shot out 33-20. to 20. The kid was stellar. Um, he should get the Vezina, I think. Um, not sure if he will. But, you know, I just found that the Bruins, I, I'm happy with the Bruins' play. Like, I'm not disappointed in how they approach the game. Uh, I thought they... They, uh, you know, played a very good offensive game. They threw everything at this kid, and he just stood on his head, obviously. And uh, I think really the Bruins went wrong, though, is that first period, you know, they were kind of dominating the play and the offensive, trying to get one by Bennington, and then, uh, you know, they get that two late goals, and that one was 7.6 seconds. That that was a death blow there. As soon as that happened, I just went, it's probably not going to be there tonight. And I think that the Bruins had, uh, although they had a good offensive game, they have the defensive coverage uh, really cost them. The one Marchand move there where he kind of stood on the blue line and made an attempt to sort of stop a guy and then kind of let him go, that was, like, shook my head on that one. Um, But, yeah, I think that's what it came down to. I mean, uh, look, all the credit to the Blues. They played a perfect seventh game. They went in, did what they had to do, and... uh, they're, they were the better team last night. I can't uh, take anything away from that organization. Man. So, uh, you know, I'm going to have to just settle for uh, looking at my 2011 banner for a while longer. Who knows how long, right? That's right. Well, at least yeah. at least Bruins fans have that. You don't have to go back very far, and, yeah. and you have some nice memorabilia and some nice memories. Bob, enjoy the yeah. summer. The Bruins will be back next year. Don't worry. They, they I don't think they're done yet. They still have a nice core and a lot of good prospects. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, I'm, look, you know, they, they do have a young core, but uh, it is what it is. They lost. They lost. No big deal. That's Carry it. On. See, hey. I knew you'd think like that. Thank you for yeah. thinking like that. Appreciate the call. 
Yeah, you know, I was going to make a comment on that, if I could, if you have time. I'm not sure if you do on that. Yeah, i got a couple minutes. Yeah. Like, okay, I know we talked about this before. I, I don't know, about a month ago, I think you were talking about this. And then I called in, and, and I said, I had spent a lot of time up on reserves in northwestern Ontario, have a lot of Native friends. And during that time, uh, even to today, like, I've never heard one of them be disgruntled about any of the sports. Matter of fact, they wear the uh, those sports team, the hats, the jerseys. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that. And I was just wondering, again, we have a report, but do we have a report going directly to the Aboriginal communities and asking them. And that's not the way it breaks down. Actually, it's interesting you point that out. We got an email from Nick saying basically the same thing. Nick says, I'm curious with the team name poll, what the numbers were for people who are represented by said offensive name. Is it Indigenous people or a bunch of non-Indigenous people offended? This poll did not differentiate that way, and I've never seen a poll done that would look at it that way. I don't. Is it high time we yeah. do something like that? Would does that is that the answer to it? Because you know, it, I don't know. It, it I, becomes I a so. difficult issue that way. But is that the answer? If if somebody, if if we all of a sudden had conclusive evidence that a certain indigenous group was not offended by a name, does that still make it right to have the name if it is still deemed by society to be offensive? Yeah. But here we go again, though. Here's the way I look at it. Now. We're, we're always complaining about how much the white man stepped in the lives of the Abor- Aboriginal communities, you know, and disrupted their way of life and what they want and how they see things. So here we are now, the white man making decisions for a people who we think we're offending. Now, I think we're oversensitive in our society today on a lot of things, and I think we should just bring that to them and say, what do you people think? What does your community think about how we see it? Are you offended? Like, uh, all I know, I'm speaking from experience, Mike, and all I know is all the people that I know are Aboriginal communities, and I, there's about four reserves that I spent a lot of time on. I work with these people alongside them. I've been on the reserves. I spent time. I've gone to their powwows. I've seen them all wear these jerseys and support those teams. It's like they have a sense of pride that they're being represented on this, you know, national scale. Now, I've never heard, honestly, I've never heard one say, you know what, this is this is a racist name or this is something I'm, I'm not comfortable with. We have to change this. I've never heard it, not once. So I think we should. I think we should bring it to them and say, hey, what do you think? Let's do a survey there and let's get a real calculation of what, how, how the people who we think are being negatively affected by it, how they feel about it. Bob, does make sense. Thanks for the call. All right, Mike. Have a good night. All right. See ya. I love how Bob deals with, and this is something for Raptors fans, win or lose tonight. It's it is just a game. This is it's like watching a movie for most people. It's the lives of some, but if you are not an employee of the team, it's not your life. It's this is like watching a game. You hope if it doesn't happen, you don't go tipping cars. Remember that. Always remember that. Uh, we will take a break for news, and then we're going to preview the CFL season of 2019. And I'll also tell you some thoughts about what meat is going to look like 20 years from now. And I'm not talking about the hot dog that you left under the barbecue and you didn't find from last summer. Not that. And I'm not talking about the stuff that you leave in the freezer and all kinds of boxes get on top of it. No. Meat in general, new meat, 
what that will look like in 20 years from now, according to a, uh, well, a, a study or two. Uh, one Beyond Meat, one Impossible Foods, one Just Foods, and a consulting firm named A.T. Kearney. They've all gotten together to try and figure this out. We'll have details next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good afternoon. It is 2.30. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London, mostly cloudy and 17 degrees. The progressive conservative government announced funding this morning to support ambulance care in the province. At a stop in London, Christine Elliott says the government has earmarked $6.8 million to support transporting critically ill newborns safer and faster. Elliott says each ambulance will have the equipment to help paramedics respond to the critical needs of patients and have the capacity to take on more calls. She says when it comes to newborns, every second counts. This innovative partnership between emergency medical services and hospitals will help reduce the time needed to uh, transport a critically ill newborn between hospitals by an estimated 19%. Elliott says the four children's hospitals in the province will jointly receive nearly $5.8 million this year to support highly specialized teams and ensure they're available 24-7. That includes the Children's Hospital at London Health Sciences Centre, which Elliott says will receive more than a million. Meantime, London Mayor Ed Holder is set to meet with Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott at City Hall. Her visit comes in the wake of the news that the province denied funding for a permanent supervised consumption site at 446 York Street, a location that had been approved by the city. Two officials from the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care toured both 446 York Street and the temporary site at 186 King Street yesterday. Dr. Chris Mackey will also be at this uh, today's meeting with Elliott. Charges depend on the outcome of a Health Canada analysis, which could take several weeks. But London police have seized several items and dismantled a suspected methamphetamine lab at a residence on Hamilton Road. Emergency services first attended the scene on Hamilton Road near East Park around 3 Tuesday afternoon. It was quickly determined there was no risk to public safety, but the area was secured and Health Canada chemists arrived yesterday to assist in the case. Today, police announced the seizure of a recipe book for making meth ingredients commonly used in making meth, containers with unidentified solids and liquids, and waste products. The investigation is ongoing. If Canada is to meet its Paris Agreement targets for greenhouse gas emissions, higher carbon taxes will be needed. Under current projections, Canada will reduce its emissions to 592 megatons of carbon dioxide by 2030. But our target is 513 megatons, which means there's a gap of 79 The Parliamentary Budget Office estimated an additional price on carbon after 2023 would cut emissions more and add a lower cost to the economy than the current fuel charge. You're listening to 980 CFPL. How much meat do you eat? Some chicken wings tonight? Is that a go-to snack for you? Wings, raptors... Could be a good combination. Well, they've done some looking around. Interesting story that details some information that, let's just call it, from the global consulting firm A.T. Kearney. They've interviewed all kinds of experts. They interviewed them from companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods and Just Foods. And they make a lot of the meat products and they handle a lot of of meat. And they've said, okay, what's the future look like? And... When you look at the fact that the conventional meat industry 
turns over $1 trillion a year. $1 trillion a year. That's pretty pretty big in terms of numbers. But they're looking at environmental impacts, and they're thinking that by 2040, 60% of the meat that we are eating will not come from a cow in the field, will not come from a chicken in a coop, and we won't get to some of the other ways that those animals are raised, but it would come from vats. In other words, meat grown in labs or plant-based products that look and taste like meat so that you'd grow meat. Do you think we'd be up for that? You ask that question and then you think, well, wait a minute. I don't want to be eating meat that's grown in a vat. I don't want to eat meat plants. And then you think about some of the stuff that we eat now. I mean, if you're eating meat that's in a can, I don't care if it's some kind of pasta thing. I don't care if it's the human dog food stuff. Is that even meat? David Letterman had a great line about it one time saying uh, this, and he showed the product. Um, when we say meat, sometimes we mean lint. And, it, you know, it's pretty close. It's not meat. I don't even know where they get that stuff from. Meat shavings, meat bits. Meat leftovers, meat that was dropped on the floor. So as much as you might say, I don't want to eat stuff that's grown in vats. I don't want to eat plant-based meat. You will. You, you are in some ways probably now. Should you be eating meat in soups that is so perfectly cubed, you have no idea what part of the animal it came from? Well, you know, it's the squares on the back. You know, you ever lifted up the wing? There's all those cubes there. No, there aren't. Where do they get those? How are those such perfect cubes? Maybe I should put those back. Just toss them aside. So by 2040, vats and plant-based meat growth is likely to make up 60% of the meat eaten, according to a study by consulting firm A.T. Kearney. Before we move on to the CFL and a preview, let's say hi to Marilyn. Marilyn, how are you? Well, I'm just fine. I haven't talked to you for a couple of days, but I've been out and about doing other things, having x-rays on my knees and that, and I think in another year I'll be in a wheelchair permanently. No, 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 don't don't say that. Did the x-rays come out okay or not so much? Well, I haven't heard anything yet, but I am definitely not going to have no operation, not at 84. Sometimes no news is good news, Marilyn. Oh, my goodness, yes. But, you know, I'm still thankful for it that I... I can't get out and about. Now, I the only meat I really eat is chicken, ham, or I like canned salmon, red sockeye salmon. That's it. Would you eat meat grown in a vat if you knew it was coming from a vat? I don't know. I'm going to tell you something now. There is a place I know of that made the best meat pies going. And then somebody told me that they saw their big St. Bernard dog licking out of those vats. <laughs> so that did it for me, Mark. <laughs> Mark or Mike? Mike. 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 That's me. Yeah. Well, Marilyn or Alexandra, as, as you once wanted uh, to be called. I have to tell you something about that Alexandra. I was in no frills down the road for me, and there's a lady that works in there. Her name is Carolyn, very nice lady. 
And she likes you. She likes you the best of all the talk show hosts. Well, next time you see her, can you please tell her thank you for saying that, Marilyn? I will. And I said to her, I, I was in there on Tuesday. I hadn't been in for a couple of weeks. And I said, oh, hi, Carolyn. And she said, hi, Alexandra. <laughs> Marilyn, you just made our day. Thank you so much for that. You have a great day. You too, dear. <laughs> Love you. Love you. Bye-bye. Always great to talk with Marilyn. 519-643-2222. Very quickly, go to Harold. Harold, how are you doing today? Not too bad at all, Mike. Not bad at all. Uh, What's up? Well, I was just hearing Marilyn talking about her arthritis there. Mm-hmm. There's a book called Arthritis and Common Sense by Dale Alexander. Okay. That when I was 50 years old, I couldn't bend my knees. I was driving school bus. I had to go to an automatic because I couldn't drive the clutch. I shouldn't cl- shouldn't couldn't cl- shove the clutch in. Anyways, I was in bed one night and I heard this guy talking about arthritis. So I thought, well, I'll pay a little attention. And this book, Arthritis and Common Sense, can be bought at the library or got at the library. And I went on the diet from March until July. And I had this idea of cleaning parking lots at the time, so I thought, well, I'll never be able to do this the way I'm in. So anyways, I went on this diet, and I drank milk like a calf and eat like a rabbit. <laughs> okay, and what did it do? It cured the arthritis. Have you been bothered by it since? Nope. You're nope. kidding. No siree. That's nope. amazing. Don't drink coffee before an hour before or an after a meal. Okay. Because your gut, something in your gut closes off and you don't get no oil out of your food. Interesting. And the oil that lubricates your joints is the size of a pencil mark, so you can figure out how you got to get that oil into your joints. <laughs> yeah. No, that, I want to tell Marilyn, don't go through the operation. Try the diet first. Try the diet first, It'll arthritis take... and common sense. I'll make sure Marilyn gets that even yeah. if she's not listening now. Yep. Harold, thanks so much for the call. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 519-643-2222. Let's take a break. Up next, the CFL season kicks off. About a month ago, there was some question as to whether or not it would. Well, it will. And game number one on the schedule happens to go head-to-head with the Raptors, but they have moved up the kickoff to 7 o'clock. Hamilton is the place. Don Landry is the man who we will speak with next and get everything that you need to know about the season that's about to unfold. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Twenty nineteen about to kick off in the Canadian Football League, and joining us right now on London Live is Don Landry, who you can find at CFL Landry. You can find his East predictions and preview. You can find his West predictions and preview. Don, how are things going today? Things are going pretty good. How about you, Mike? It's been Not a while. Bad, Do you yeah. enjoy that? Uh, you enjoy that game last night. I don't know we're here to talk football, but. Enjoy the Stanley Cup final? You know what? As far as a game goes, it it didn't have a lot of drama, but boy, was it nice to see the St. Louis Blues win that Stanley Cup. We've got so many local ties that we've been talking about, but I don't know about you. I'm a sucker for a worst-to-first story, and you can't get any more worst-to-first than that. Absolutely. I mean, what were they, dead last January 2nd or 3rd and all the way to the Stanley Cup championship? A very likable team, lots of likable stories uh, in that vein. You know, of, uh, guys, some off the scrap heap like Jordan Bennington. And uh, it's just been so long for them. And uh, I think uh, traditionally, Mike, they've never really been a team that anyone dislikes. 
So, you know, it was easy to root for them. Yeah, the Blues are coming to town. You didn't say, oh, we got to get those guys. We got to beat those. You, you never heard that. So, no, no, some great stories all around. Jordan Bennington on waivers in the fall. And mm-hmm. because he's not claimed on waivers, the story unfolds. It's, sports is wild, isn't it? It is. You never one hop of the puck, one stroke of the pen. All these things can just set the tumblers clicking into amazing things. Well, a stroke of a pen had to do something for the CFL before we even got to today, and the idea that the season will kick off tonight. When everything was happening with negotiations between the players and the league, and trying to get a new collective agreement together, how how touch and go really was that? I don't think really touch and go. I mean, um, they were adversarial. Certainly there was, you know, uh, a public feud on certain things here and there. But in the end, both sides truly know that this is a league that isn't on the same footing. as Major League Baseball, the NHL, the NFL, the NBA, uh, where, you know, you, you might possibly be able to weather uh, a collective bargaining storm and no season. Neither side wants that. These aren't rich people who can sit on their bank accounts and go, whatever, we'll wait the other side out. Um, they they all want to make some money. They all want to keep this going. So I don't think there was ever a real threat that there was going to be a work stoppage of any significance more. I, I could see it maybe happening for a couple or three days during training camp, but we didn't even have that. Well, that at least is good, and we get no work stoppage. They've got three more years, and things do kick off tonight. Hamilton and Saskatchewan, we've seen a little bit of that quarterback carousel again this year. In terms of storylines, how big is it that Mike Riley is in B.C.? Huge. Uh, for me, he's still the best quarterback in the Canadian Football League. I'll get some argument from people who are Bowley by Mitchell fans, and, and rightfully so. He was Mitchell was the most outstanding player last year. Uh, Riley had an argument for it, too. He's just the consummate leader. Whatever leaders you can think of in your sport these days, whatever your favorite sport is, Mike Riley is that for the CFL, uh, a guy who will take punishment, who will take hits, who will walk through flaming walls for his teammates, and he gets guys around him to play better and be better because of it. And so that's big for the BC Lions. They made some other changes as well, and there is the expectation that they're going to take a great leap forward in being a contender. You know the league is going to be big in all of those main markets in Calgary and Saskatchewan and Edmonton and Winnipeg. How, how key is it to have BC as kind of a, a go-to market that has a team doing very well? Is it important, or is it just one of those things, if, if it happens, it's nice? I think it's important. Um, the, you know, their their attendance has been waning a little bit over the last few years. I mean, they're they're never going to fill BC Place unless it's a, a Grey Cup, as they did, you know, a few years ago. But you know, if they can get into what you know are good CFL numbers, crowds of twenty five to thirty thousand, certainly uh, that's doable in Vancouver. Uh, then they're in a much healthier position. They hadn't been terribly competitive the last few years, and that was a problem. And in the CFL, uh, being competitive is a big thing. Being, you know, exciting to having some entertainment value is a big deal too. And so with Riley in there, you're getting entertainment. They've added some other offensive pieces as well that are going to lead them to be an entertaining team. And that should bode well for them in the Vancouver market.
Don Landry joining us, columnist with CFL.ca as we look ahead to the start of the CFL season. Kicks off tonight. If you're headed there before the Raptors game, remember, it is actually a 7 o'clock start, not a 7.30 kickoff. We'll talk about the Ontario teams in a moment, but I just want to get an overview. Calgary has been kind of that team that's always vying for a Grey Cup. Uh, They seem to be a team that people are talking about. When you're looking at favorites, do you start with them? I guess you have to. Um, you know, if they hadn't had so many changes in the off season, I would say you definitely have to. There seems to be some question as to how their defense is going to play out this year. They lost a lot of big name guys. They lost uh, two great defensive linemen. They lost the best middle linebacker in the Canadian Football League, Alex Singleton, who's now a Philadelphia Eagle. And so there's some question as to what their defense is going to be. They also lost a little bit on the offensive side of the ball, but they kept quarterback Bo Levi Mitchell, which was big, and the Stampeders have, over the last few years, uh, kept good players in place, but then when they when they weren't able to, they've always come up with new guys that shone brightly, and so you have to, I think, look at them and John Huffnagel, their general manager, and give him the benefit of the doubt that he is replacing those players with good ones again. So, they should be at or near the top again, but not slam dunk they have been over the last few years. Hey, that's never a bad thing. Don Landry joining us, columnist with CFL.ca. Don, before we let you go, Hamilton and Toronto tend to be the two markets that people in this region flock to to see CFL games. What do you see from both the Argos and the Ticats this year? Ticats are the contender in the East. They are the favorite in the East, and you have three other teams, including the Argonauts, that have questions all over the field, although they should be improved, the Argos. They have a new quarterback, James Franklin, who's untried and untested. Ricky Ray retired. Hamilton's the real. They're stacked all over the place, and they should be able to take this division. The question is, which of the three teams behind them is going to emerge? Because they've all got similar questions at quarterback and new personnel and new coaches uh, in, in the case of a couple of them, Montreal and Toronto. So you've got uh, three teams that are filled with question marks behind Hamilton that's been pretty consistent and with a great quarterback in Jeremiah Mazzoli. They look good to go in the East. Montreal is now controlled by the league again. Is that just a matter of time, do you think, before we see an ownership group step up and, and keep the Alouettes exactly doing what they're doing? Hopefully. I mean, there have been three or four groups that have been nosing around, and a couple of them have made offers. One was turned down by the CFL. There are a couple of brothers who are originally from the area that now live in California uh, who have uh, reportedly made an offer. So you hope to get that sorted out as soon as possible. Uh, The Alouettes, there's there's a team that needs to win. They've been absolutely awful for the last four or five seasons since the great Anthony Calvillo retired. And they need to get some traction back into that market because they used to just sell out every game. A small stadium, yes, but they were selling it out and breaking even or maybe even making money. And in the last few years, they haven't been able to do that. Don, we look forward to your coverage of the league throughout the year. Thanks so much for the preview today. Thanks, Mike. You take care. Don Landry. He is a columnist for CFL.ca. So some of the major things happening, watch for BC on the rise. Calgary's still there. And as Don says, if you're a Ticat fan, get ready. Because he says they are the class of the East Division. They kick things off in Hamilton tonight. And that will be a 7 o'clock start. And following that, we'll be deep into Raptors versus Warriors. We'll have a word on that to close out the show next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.
Jurassic Park in London, Dundasic Park in London will be alive and hopping rain or shine tonight. Nine o'clock tip-off, Toronto Raptors, Golden State Warriors. A win and the Raptors are champions. They've won three times at Oracle Arena. It's going to be the final game at Oracle Arena. The thing to watch for early on, and this is it, and this this will go a long way to determining whether or not the Raptors win tonight. The Golden State Warriors are held together with shoestring uh, some of that gooey stuff that you can put behind posters on the wall, you know, that blue stuff, it's it's kind of like Play-Doh, but it's not. It's it's sticky. I don't know what it is. That's holding them together right now. This roster is a bit of a mess, but they find ways. However, if you are seeing the Golden State Warriors switching off an offensive lineup, a defensive lineup, making a lot of changes early on, that's a good sign for the Raptors because Golden State has fewer and fewer people who can actually do their scoring on a consistent basis. That's what they're lacking. Meanwhile, the Raptors are really deep that way. So if you see a number of Raptors scoring points and let's say only two or three Golden State Warriors picking up all their points, that's a really good sign. Watch for that tonight. And if that's happening, maybe we see a great big celebration from coast to coast. Congratulations to the St. Louis Blues. Thank you for all the emails on your snacks. Enjoy those snacks throughout the night tonight. That's it for London Live today. We are back tomorrow with a whole lot more to do. One run takes place tomorrow. Thanks to Kelly Wong for her help. London Live brought to you by courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. News is on the way next. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.